This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and... You know, I really, I say this, um, we do this introduction all the time, but I really am grateful. I'm grateful again and again, and my gratefulness is renewed every time I get to do this because I get to talk to these awesome people, these impressive people, smart people, engaged people, people that I'm really interested in, in their, in who they are as human beings and uh, the work that they've done and, and contributed to our culture. And uh, yeah, we just get to do that here. It is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And just a gentle reminder, if you could take the time to leave a review on whichever pot, which by the way, Waj, we got a two-star review and it's all your fault. Did you know that? Why? (laughs) No one liked what I... (laughs) Yeah, we were getting these five-star reviews. Over the summer, uh, people were listening to Dr. Jean Twangy about generations, and we had Larry Wilmore. Everybody enjoys Larry and his work on Blackish and Bernie Mac show. And then we did um, we did a, our interview with uh, Robbie Jones, and well, um, he's great. yeah, and he he thanked you uh, in the in the acknowledgement. So you essentially wrote that book. <laughs> and, I will if if the book is a bestseller, I will take a credit for it. <laughs> And but it's about you know Robbie. Uh, it's about white supremacy, as as folks who listen to the show know. And then next day we get a two star review for being divisive. <laughs> so oh, our two star review is but, all your the fault. The thing is, you know, this. So I have this remarkable gift uh, of uh, of inspiring the gamut of emotions when it comes uh, <laughs> to listeners and our fellow brethren. Uh, it's one of those situations that each and every single time you bring up uncomfortable but necessary truths, you are accused of being divisive. You're like, it's like, especially like, you know, racism is bad. Maybe we should do something about it. Why are you being the racist? Like, no, no, no. I'm trying to end racism. Why can't you just stay quiet? And I think it's it's one thing I'll quickly say is it's. You know, power doesn't like to be confronted. Power doesn't like to be challenged. All of us, we want to maintain our comfort. No one wants to be inconvenienced, Corey. But how do you change and how do you grow without temporary discomfort? It's impossible. Well, and it's a good point, especially with Robbie's book, because in all sincerity, Robbie comes from the Mississippi Delta, grew up in the Baptist, in the Southern Baptist Church. Inside, um, so, it's in his bones. Yeah, yeah. So he, it's a critique from the, and, and it's the kind of thing that we must do. I, I often, as I go through the Bible, I start in Genesis, I get to Revelation, I start all over again. And whenever I get to prophets, it always strikes me that the, even, even in Chronicles, even in the stories of the kings, it's the, the prophets aren't pointing their finger at Babylon or, or, you know, the surrounding areas. They're, they're, the prophets are speaking to the Israelites, but the prophets are speaking to their own people more so right. than anything else. So anyway, we're getting very deep into Interesting it. Interesting point that you mentioned with the, when, when you, you know, so two questions. Uh, well, one, one question, one observation, but uh, do, you, do you read the Bible start to finish, then you start again, or do you go to specific sections? I typically I typically just start again. I mean, sometimes I'm, there's a passage or a book that I'm reading something on. You know, for example, when I was reading through N.T. Wright, a great historian's work, he was dealing with first century Israel. So he's spending a lot of time in the gospel accounts. Um, or mm. when his, his books on uh, the volumes that he released on Paul, I was reading a lot of Paul's letters. But for the most part, I just have this habit where I wake up and I, I read a chapter from the Bible, start in Genesis 1 and go, you know, work my way through Revelation 22. And that's how I do it. So, you know, it's very similar. I do the same. Uh, I go just, I, I just kind of keep reading. I try to read about 20 to 50 verses a day. And then uh, once it finishes, I go back or if there's some verses I want to memorize. Um, and the story of the prophets, for those who don't know, you know, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, known as the monotheistic religion, the religions, the Abrahamic faiths. You know, if you have studied these religions, uh, you see the similarities, right? They, they share the prophetic tree. And even though Muslims uh, say Allah in Arabic, it always amuses me whenever some people are so ignorant. They're like, they worship a moon god. I'm like, listen, you can, you can crap on Islam all you want, but you got to know we worship the same god. They're like, no, no, it's the moon god. Nope, god of Abraham. Trust me on this. 
Um, and what's interesting is when you read the stories of the prophets, they're very similar. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, uh, Lot, uh, uh, David, uh, Noah. Uh, and each and every single time when I read the story of the prophets, uh, when they come in the Quran or the Bible, you know, you sit there and you, I, I know this is some dark humor, but can you imagine Moses? I always think about this. If I could be a, a fly on the wall, Moses leads his people out, right? He goes, he's shown miracle after miracle. Uh, he ha- has said, listen, I'm going to call out a whole bunch of plagues. Plagues are going to happen. Uh, all right. The Pharaoh is going to let my people go. All right. We're going to be wandering in the desert. Pharaoh's going to chase us. All right. Guess what? Another miracle. Red Sea opens up. Boom. Pharaoh and his people get swallowed up. All right, now we're going to chill at a mountain. I need to go speak to God. Just wait 40 days. If I'm not back in like, okay, 41 days, then you can worship a golden calf, right? But just give me 40. (laughs) Have I earned 40 days? And they're like, yeah, sure, Moses. All right, just 40 days. uh, By the 41st day, then worship the calf, all right? And so Moses goes all the way up. And can he... I just want to be the fly on the wall to look at Moses' face as he turns around the corner, (laughs) coming down. (laughs) <laughs> having engaged with God and literally sees most of his people in a full-on friggin' pleasure dome, like oh my God. pornographic, like, you know, cornucopia uh, of just like gluttony and lust. And like, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be blasphemous here. I can imagine inside his head, Moses like, what the F man? Like, really? Really? I literally just I asked for 40 that. days, mother effers. I said 40 days. Uh, so it's one of those things. Where, I never you know, you sit there and you go, you know, every time I get frustrated, I go, you know, there was also Moses who literally saved his people from the Pharaoh. All he asked for was 40 days and human beings with the attention span of gnats being uh, as forgetful as we are couldn't even give him 40. So who are we? Oh, my God. I've never thought of that. Oh, you know, so when I come downstairs in the morning and I see my my I Lisa lives up in San Francisco now with her job. And so I'm with two, and our oldest kid is up in Humboldt. I live with the two boys. Um, I come downstairs and I'm like and I'm thinking my problem is you couldn't put the dish in the dishwasher. You know, so I can relate to Moses. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very similar, very similar to uh, saving your people from centuries of oppression. And, and you know, people not listening. But it, it is one of those interesting things where, you know, every single prophet uh, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, in the Quran, you know, they are counseling their people and yeah. they do it out of love. And some of them are frustrated. Some of them aren't. You know, some of them have a little bit more patience. But at the end of the day, they do it out of love to make them better. Yeah. That's why they do it. And each and every time, what happens? Most, most of their people reject them. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine Nathan approaching King David, you know, with an exhortation. But if King David was, uh, you know, a MAGA, you know, Trump supporter, what would his response? His response must be something very different. Fake news. You know, like, I'm just trying to imagine that. I think, you know what, this this is where we might be blasphemous that we're comparing King David to Trump. But uh, it is interesting that you mentioned King David and, and the timing of that is kind of on point because just yesterday, as of this recording, the actor Jim uh, Caviezel, yeah. whom you all know, uh, who was a fine actor back in the day, folks. He really was. Uh, and then he went off the deep end with QAnon. But just yesterday, he compared Trump to King David. Uh, and he said his faith is deep inside, doesn't talk about it. And another actor, Kurt Cameron from Growing Pains, oh who was God. a fine actor back in the day, kids, trust us. <laughs> he compared Trump and a few others have compared Trump to uh Cyrus, the right, Persian king, Cyrus. king. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 both comparisons were that he is but a flawed instrument of God. And and once you start comparing Trump to prophets and as instruments of God, that's where I feel like especially if you take religion and God seriously, you have to speak up because you have to reclaim your religion for yeah. from people who have hijacked it for white supremacy. I will I will embrace this exercise anytime someone it's almost a challenge for me uh, because as I do read through my Bible it, it is I don't want to read it through the lens uh, through through a myopic lens of our time and our place but it is stark how every page testifies against the words actions and character of Donald Trump 
you know, one time somebody brought something up to me. I was I was critiquing uh, the daily outrage uh, that that Trump, uh, you know, uh, something tr- Trump said, and he brought up a verse that indicated that it's um, one of the things that God hates is divisiveness. And all I said was, dude, can we read the rest of the chapter here? It says <laughs> these six things. No, these seven the Lord hates. And the divisiveness, okay, duly noted. Listen, I, perhaps I'm causing some dissension uh, by talking about what good virtues are, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But of these seven things, you got to admit, Trump ain't getting good grades in any of them. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, let's keep reading. <laughs> you know? and, and also, I mean, I'm sure I, you might have talked about this on your podcast last month, but uh... – I believe his name is Russell Moore, who used to be part of the Southern Baptist. We had Dr. Uh, Moore on the show in July. His new book came out, um, you know, the, the religiosity there you go. That, that, that's taken hold of American evangelicalism. And, and in, in a couple of weeks ago in August, he, he was mentioning, and I think he wrote, wrote an op-ed about this um, to promote his book, where, <laughs> I mean, it's really depressing, man. Priests and pastors are now telling him that when they're, um, you know, on the pulpit giving the sermon— <laughs> there's people in the congregation who come up to him like, hey, man, why don't you say the real stuff that Jesus said? What's up with all this woke stuff? <laughs> right. <laughs> and they're like, I'm reading the gospel. It's like, literally. No, no, come on, man. Um, and, and, and it coincides with this white Christian nationalist version of a warrior Jesus where, you know, uh, I think William Boykin actually was William Boykin, who was a general in the uh, war in Iraq who then became part of this white Christian nationalist movement. He said that Jesus will come back with an uh, uh, AR-15. And so Jesus has become this weaponized mascot for, I think you would agree with me, an increasingly radicalized movement that is anti-democracy, anti-freedom, and I would say, Corey, anti-God. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think the fact that we were talking about the golden calf before and now talking about this makes a lot of sense because the Israelites that left Egypt, um, what they were very familiar with, to them, worshiping a golden calf was what they were familiar with culturally. This is yeah. what this is what um, reverence looks like, right? So in our culture, this is what reverence looks like, that we have a certain um, transcendent reverence for a flag, for example, that we have a certain transcendence or a, a weird... Um, obsession with guns for example that we so when <clears throat> when our idolatry kicks in it's not something that's going to look 180 degrees different than mm. what we think of as as um, proper godly worship it's going to look about 10 degrees different uh, just sure. enough for us to be fooled that this is what christianity is or this is what you know following you know allah is in your in your faith but uh, I can't believe we're already over, you know, almost 15 minutes in. We haven't, I haven't introduced you yet. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, but you know what? It's fine. At least the conversation is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So Wajahat Ali is a writer originally from the Bay Area. Waj has been an attorney, a New York Times op-ed writer, a CNN commentator, co-host of Al Jazeera America's The Stream, lead researcher and author for the Center for American Progress's report, Fear, Inc., Roots of the Islamophobia Network in America, He's currently a columnist for the Daily Beast and is the author of an excellent, funny, and at times heart-wrenching book. Uh, We talked about it last time. It came out in 2022, titled Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American. (laughs) American. And he is the co-host of Democracy-ish, which is an excellent show, aside from a guest or two that they've had on, which are very questionable, highly suspect. (laughs) And rumor has it, he's an aspiring gold medalist in the Lego Olympics. Watch. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know what? I've, uh, as you can see from my barren shelf, uh, it used to be packed, and now I'm uh, selling and or donating a lot of my Legos as uh, I'm entering middle age and retiring. Because you know, like a, like an NBA star, there's only so much, and then you know, you're, you're you know, when your fingers and thumbs give up, you know, it, you have to go out on top. Uh, but thank for thank you for that warm introduction. So you know what we can see? We can see Waj is indeed a man of good face. <laughs> a man that, of esteem. 
I, uh, you are kind. Uh, uh, I still have some hair. I, I am a South Asian unicorn, a, a, a South Asian man in his 40s who still has some hair on his head. Uh, how long this will last, who knows? But for those who don't know, Corey Nathan, mashallah, as we say, no evil eye, has a thick mane. Uh, so he's making his uh, Jewish ancestors very proud. Yeah, the, the Jewish Santa Claus of some sort. I don't know. <laughs> um, so in all seriousness, tell me about Ibrahim Nuseba and Ka- – do you say it Khadija or Khadija? Khadija. 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 Thank you. So Ibrahim Nuseba and Khadija are my three kids. And uh, obviously you could tell that I gave them mainstream names to blend in. <laughs> do they want to do the you like you were talking about doing the Wilbur thing? To, are any of them talking about doing like Ike? You know, <laughs> you, know? you know the funny thing is, is you know last time I was on, I did talk about how you know when you don't see yourself represented in school, in particular, and you know I grew up in the eighties and nineties. So many of us, and I was lucky compared to so many, but so many of us learn to hate ourselves: the, the, the shape of your nose, the color of your eyes, your religion, your, your traditions, your food. You just want to fit in, and fitting in and being normal means white. Back in those days, still does. That's the mainstream culture. We all have to acclimate to it, the rest of us. And so <laughs> when I was young, even though I was surrounded by love, I told my mom, I'll change my name from Wajahat to Wilbur. Uh, not Walt, not William, <laughs> Wilbur. And the reason I chose Wilbur was because we were reading Charlotte's Web and everyone loved the pig Wilbur. So I thought they'd love me. But what's really comforting is, you know, in the year 2023, you know, we're in Virginia now. And where my kids go to school, it's so ethnically and religiously diverse, Corey. There's so many different kids. Like, they don't go through that at all. Like, our neighbors are um, Ethiopian-American. The other neighbors are, are white Christian, uh, I think, born again. Uh, another pe- pe- Some other person is Muslim. There's also Latinos. And it's like a very great snapshot of America. They get all these different parents and all these different kids going to these different schools with different languages um, and different traditions and different food. And all these kids are exposed to each other that no one, and my son's just turned nine, my daughter's seven, and my other daughter is about to turn four. They've never, ever come home and said, uh, instead of Ibrahim, uh, I, I want to go with uh, Isaac <laughs> or, or Ike. Uh, and, 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 and in fact, the cool thing is their friends are like, Ibrahim, that's cool. That's like Abraham. Awesome. Yeah. Or yeah. Nuseba. That's such an interesting name. So it, it's, it's, it's one of those blessings that you, you can sit there and be very cynical about this country called America. Because every time we take two steps forward towards progress, as we're witnessing right now, the country kind of chokeholds you back. But then you see, you know, it, it's a bit different from when you and I were growing up, where yeah. kids kind of get it. The kids... The kids have always gone. The kids are very malleable and fluid and, and agile. They can always adapt. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the parents. We're the ones who get scared and stuck and frightened. You know, I, I was also speaking of your kids, I, I was also curious. A lot of folks ask you about Nuseba. And I'm obviously, you know, my, I have my father say a Mishabera, which is like a Jewish prayer for health. I was also curious about Ibrahim. Uh, like, he was old enough to have gone. Through that, I'm guessing he was old enough to understand what was happening. Um, what was his experience? Did did that shape his early formation, his early character in any way? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a very good question, and my wife and I have thought about this a lot because when, you know, about four years ago, Nuseba had stage four cancer right before she was about to turn three. Very intense. Uh, as you all can imagine, and and I hope you only imagine it and never have to experience it. I hope no parent or guardian ever does. She was very lucky, and she got that uh, uh, liver donation by a person who was initially anonymous, but then came out Sean Zahir. And you know, right after uh, she rang the bell, and ringing the bell for those who don't know is when you're declared cancer free, right? With the new um, liver in her, it was like six, seven month, just painful process. The next month, pandemic shutdown. Wow. So we went from cancer to shutdown wow. at a pretty formative stage. And, you know, we have noticed that, and I'm glad you asked that. It, 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 obviously, the person suffering from cancer and during it, they have it the worst. But it's almost like if you've seen Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer the nuclear bomb, there's always collateral damage. The, the, the mushroom cloud expands, right? And so it affects not just the person suffering from cancer, the parents, the grandparents, the siblings. And my Khadija was in uh, Sarah, my wife's belly. And I remember with Ibu, you know, you can imagine this kid was like about to turn five. And all of a sudden, mama's in the hospital. His routine is disrupted. Uh, I remember 
you know, once uh, Nusebo was spending so much time in the hospital, I had to take Ibu to the dentist. And that was just one of those things that his mom used to take him. And, you know, kids are very sensitive and they're very smart. They, they're very aware. And it was supposed to be a routine dentist appointment. And he, my son and all my kids are very good at barbershops and dentists. He just flipped out, man. Oh, he wow. just flipped out. And, and, you know, dentists are used to this. It was children's dentist office. But he flipped out so much that even the dentists and nurses realized something's off. So I said, listen, let's cancel this. And I realized it was him kind of acting out, trying to need his mom, right? And there was periods even like for two or three years afterwards, he he he's, he said once in a while, he goes, Nuseba always gets all the love. Uh, and, and he kind of was really attached to the mom. So with, with uh, my wife, she has to be a bit more sensitive to him. And he has a sensitive nature. And then even Nuseba, I think she's much better now. But there were these periods of I think she had traumatic flashbacks, even though she was not able to articulate it, where she would just melt down. And then and I, and I told my wife, I kind of understood how she was behaving. You have to understand your kid as you know, you know, the, this old school um, idea, you know, give the kid the rod. Uh, first of all, I don't believe in that. Number two, some kids break. Like, you know, you need to know your kid. So some kids, yeah, a little bit of firm discipline. Either you, you yell or you're stern. Boom, they get in shape. But another kid, you need a different approach. You need a hug. Does it make, you know, you, you need a gentle word. Yeah. Because if you go with that firm approach, you'll break them. You'll break them spiritually and mentally. So Ibrahim is a sensitive kid. I always knew that. And, and even Nuseba, as a result of this trauma of her cancer, I realized, you know, once they're having like a, a freak out, I realized, oh, it wasn't just the kid acting out and misbehaving. I think this poor girl and even this kid were having some sort of a panic attack or trauma attack. And once I kind of identified that, once you just kind of give them a hug or kiss them or just like are nurturing, within five minutes, they calm down. Yeah. And or anyone who's going through any challenges, it's important to realize that uh, kids absorb everything. Uh, they absorb your stress, your panic, your rage, your anger. And and they're developing a language at this age to be able to communicate. And sometimes they don't know. So you have to be very attuned to it. And that's where I realized, oh, these kids are still you know, they're still going through it. And the last thing I'll say is me and my wife, you know, we, we, we talked about this last week. We're like, we've never really had a time to like relax, excel or process. We went from Nuseba's cancer to the pandemic to, to trying to keep Nuseba alive during the pandemic yeah. to now. And I'm like, oh, crap, man. It's been three and a half years. We haven't really exhaled. So imagine <laughs> the kids. Maybe it's time to write another play. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I got an idea for a book. Um, so tying it into that experience, you, you, describe, um, you describe a moment in, in the book um, when you were processing the fact that you have OCD uh, and you realize that possibly your dad has the way that your dad responded to you when you were explaining. I think the way you put it was that your your brain doesn't shut off or something like that. And then, am, am I remembering that right? That yeah, that yeah, it, it's it, it, you, you get stuck. And I remember, I mean, uh, we didn't. For those who are listening, you know, we didn't plan this out. I didn't know what Corey would ask me, but just about. So today's Thursday. So Tuesday, we had this conversation. Now, I'll, I'll say this. I was diagnosed with OCD uh, in college. Uh, and my dad then, a couple of years ago, was diagnosed. And my dad, to his credit, being a man in his 70s, South Asian immigrant, for those of you who know, there's certain stereotypes associated with a generation of men. We, you know, I think Corey and myself, our generation and older, the, the message that we were given, Corey, was a strong man suffers quietly suffers well, dies. <laughs> That's it. You never whine. You never complain. You keep it all in. You just lock it in. You just lock it tight. You just keep it in tight. Even though if it's choking, you just keep it in tight. If there's a tear, you suck that tear back up in the tear duct, uh, and, and then you die. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's your generation, my generation, like I think 40 plus that that's this old school generational thing. That's how we were trained. Um, and that's how some of us are for better and for worse. This, this whole concept of self-care is very new. It's very Gen Z and millennial, which my hat's off to you that it's, it's very good that they're doing it because I think they learned. They're like, I think my dad was deeply depressed and traumatized. I don't want to go out like that. And so my father, credit to him, 
that he openly talks about it. He goes to therapy. He shares it. Right. So I decided, Corey, for the first time in 20 years, you know, I, I decided to like an idiot. I white knuckled it for 20 years um, and I went really far and I went as far as I could. And then in the summer, I'm just talking about a couple of months ago, I said, I have three kids. Uh, I'm still alive. I always thought I'd be dead by 40. And I have to be better and I can be better. And I've only like I, I'm going 75 percent and I know I could go 100 and I've only gone 75 percent for 20 years. Does that make sense? Where could I, I have gone? Where could yeah. I have gone if I had a full hundred? I see. I see. Yeah, so I, I went to a therapist. I finally started going for OCD. And the therapist heard me and she goes, you know, it's very impressive. You know yourself really well. You've done a lot of work. You're very aware. You, 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 you're much better off than most people who come here. But wow, you must have suffered. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you suffered quietly for so long. And uh, I, my, my session was on Tuesday, which was two days ago. And I told her, I said, you know, right before I was driving, I just had a random memory. When I was 11, I used to go every week to get allergy shots. For those yeah. who know, they know. Uh, <laughs> it's just painful. And then, every, and then it becomes every other week, then becomes once a month. But it's just super painful. I have terrible allergy shots. And I said, you know, living in the Bay Area, it was next to Value Fair Mall. If you know, you know. <laughs> and, and on the way back, my dad and I used to go to the Value Fair Mall every week for six months. And I just, my dad used to buy 10 shirts and ties, then the next week return them. Then buy 10 shirts and ties. Next week, return them. Then buy 10 shirts and ties. And I never saw him wear the tie. And at that time, I kind of realized this was not normal because I'm like, yo, I want to go home. It's like Sunday. Oh. And, and, you know, and then I thought about it and I told my dad, I said, do you remember this? And my mom was on the phone. And my father said, yeah, yeah. And, and I told this to my therapist and she said, and she really was, she's deeply empathetic. She goes, oh, I feel so bad for him. He, he, he was engaging in a compulsion without realizing it. Yeah. And so th and, and so once you diagnose this, Corey, and I think especially with the elders who are listening, you know, once you find out from your elders, a grandfather or dad, they get diagnosed with depression or anxiety. It's like the, this like blinders come off your eyes and you look back in your past and you go, oh, that makes sense. That's why they behave the way they did. <laughs> like, right. And I told my dad that I'm like, that's why you behaved in those ways. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I just I didn't know. I just I had OCD. You know, so interestingly, I, I've never shared this story, I, I don't think, but um, my Aunt Rosie died, uh, and she was the young, I think she was the youngest of the Blick sisters. I was named after my great-grandmother, Hannah, um, Hannah Blick, or she was Hannah Creval. And uh, for some, I was a, I don't know, I was a teenager, I think, or maybe late teens, and I leaned over to my dad, I said, Dad, Rosie was crazy. And he said, Rosie... And everyone earned the right to be crazy. They came from Russia. It was actually Ukraine, but, you know, they called it Russia when they were still there. And uh, I, you know, kind of dismissed, based on their life experience, that um, that was the case. But we didn't consider the possibility that there is this, whether it's generational trauma or the chemical makeup of our brain, that um, Hana was actually... Uh, manic depressive mm. and then subsequently i was diagnosed manic depressive bipolar in 2007 oh um, yeah there's there's this so that, that that's one of the reasons i asked you about mental health I, I was curious if you know what other tools you've developed to um to manage uh ocd or i'm sure that you had seasonal uh anxiety or depression uh at different times what tools have you developed yeah so look uh, i think you will agree with me that oftentimes um, society, Western society romanticizes uh, mental health <laughs> in a way, especially when you're a writer or a creative or an artist. Oh, they need to suffer. Uh, if you're not suffering, you're not trying. <laughs> yeah, if you're not suffering. And then also this really uh, absurd, ma uh, sadistic and masochistic kind of uh, puritanical Nietzsche way of life. Uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and no one ever adds yeah but it might leave scars <laughs> yes, and wounds right but you know america's like you gotta suffer Ugh. Uh, and i'm like yeah i think that's incomplete and i mentioned that because it goes back to my original point about masculinity and men and what we were taught you suffer quietly you suffer well that's a dignified life and then you die with honor but is it really honorable and then you also think to yourself huh that person especially that dad if he had gotten help, maybe his wife would have been happier. 
maybe his kids yeah. would have been happier. Maybe that, it would have been where, more productive. Right? That's where it breaks my heart the most is because my kids are 22, 20, and 18. And I think if I were more earnest about managing this, keeping within um, healthier levels uh, at times, as well as um, understanding and naming uh, – I wouldn't say that I, I'm a classic narcissist, but I definitely have narcissistic tendencies because of uh, very, I, I don't need to go into it, but you know, to, to be able to understand that name that, um, and I think I would have been a better father when they were little. So that, that it grieves me that I couldn't, that I, but it's all a process, you know, every day is a new day. Every day is a new, new opportunity. Yeah. You know? it's, it's a process. And so you're onto it, you know, to answer your question, I think the, the most difficult thing for most people is to name it. And yeah. the reason for that is, first and foremost, so when you're talking about how to process it and how to help yourself, first and foremost, to understand. Because many of us, we feel like we're crazy and, we, and, and it, like, why is my brain this way? And I know something's off. But going back to the, this, this really toxic ideal of masculinity, don't share anything. And, and so what happens then is you feel shame. And shame and doubt and guilt is like, fuel to the fire of mental health uh, disability, especially OCD. I'm, I think same thing with manic depressive uh, behavior, bipolar, right? So you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel like defective, you feel there's something wrong with you, you can't tell anyone. If you feel like you tell someone, you feel like you'll be judged and no one wants to be judged and no one wants to be seen as less than. So what do you do? You suffer quietly, which is the worst, right? So the yeah. first decision is I'm done suffering quietly. I have to go get help. That help can be in the form of talking to someone, either a therapist or a loved one, someone you trust, and, and being like, yo, there's something happening inside me. What do I do? That's number one. Uh, what I would also say, number two, that has really helped, and I only speak from experience. I'm not trying to BS anyone. I'm trying to be as raw and honest as possible, is as quickly as you can jettison the shame and guilt. If you can get rid of that as quickly as you can, it's like pouring like solve over yourself right like mm. you will heal immediately because that is like just you whipping yourself it's unnecessary masochism uh the shame and the guilt do nothing nothing um so you just simply say you know what this is how god made me <laughs> you know other people work this way for whatever reason i have an electrical misfiring it's fine some people have a lisp some people have a limp some people have a, a stutter I got this one wire that just needs a little bit of manual help uh, to, to, to get, you know, uh, to cross. And so once you can do that and you could be as gentle as yourself with it, I think that's number one because you unburden yourself. The second thing is if you could talk to someone, that's another unburdening. The third thing I would say is then you understand how your brain works, right? And so getting the knowledge, Corey, oh, this is OC. Like once I start reading it, I'm like, Oh, this is how my brain works. Yeah. I'm not crazy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. this is why my brain does what it does. Oh, every other person has the same exact exact thoughts, sensations, and feelings. It's just that I have a misfiring in my brain that raises the alarm. And the alarm that gets raised floods my body with this feeling and sense of dread and flight, flight. And if everybody else had this misfire, they'd behave exactly the same way. I'm not crazy. I knew I was never crazy. Right. And I'm logical and I'm aware and I feel the need to do these compulsions to escape as anyone else would do. Like if you feel if there's a bear in front of you, what do you do? Fight, flight. You run. Well, with OCD and anxiety disorders, the bear, you imagine the bear and you know logically there's no bear in front of you, but your body can't tell the difference. It produces the same feeling of fear. And mm. so you have to come up with a, some some behavior to get out, right? So you're like, oh, that's why I do the compulsions. And oh, the compulsions then lean into the cycle. So what do I have to do? Oh, I have to change my behaviors. And then you realize what's so amazing about the elasticity of human beings. We touched upon it briefly, how kids are like this naturally and how, unfortunately, as we grow older, we become more rigid. You change your brain chemistry by changing your behavior, right? And so as a result of going to therapy, and I did as much as I could by myself, Corey, and now with a therapist, the reason why it's helped is I told the therapist on the day one, I've gone as far as I can. I think I'm at 75%. I need a partner to, to see where I'm going wrong, to, to look at my blind spots and help me the rest of the way. And in two months, I'll tell you, I've only been doing it two months. I've gone from 75% to 85%. And, That's and, great. The, and the last thing I'll say, is, and it'll take time. And I realized perfection is not the answer. 
because this is a lifelong condition for us. But I know how I work and I know, you know, what do they say? Know yourself and know your creator. There's a saying in Islam, I think the same in other uh, uh, religious traditions. Know yourself and you get to know your creator, right? <laughs> like, how, how does your creator create you? Everyone's a bit different. And, and the last thing I'll say is surrounding yourself with um, loved ones. I'm very lucky my wife is deeply empathetic. She's a doctor. She gets it. She's understanding. Uh, my parents are very understanding. Uh, and, you know, I'll say this last thing I'll say, and, and thank you for spending time on this because hopefully I, I think it might help people. I've seen, I wrote an article about this, Corey, a couple of years ago in the New York Times. And before writing it, I was like, people will make fun of me. They'll mock me. They'll ridicule me. My enemies and critics will use this to, to, to destroy me. But I'll still put it out there. None of that happened. Instead, I got all these emails of encouragement, but also, and what saddens me, so many people, man, that's me. Wow. And then one other thing I'll say. One father, I'll never forget this. One father said, my son's OCD growing up caused a rift in our relationship because it used to frustrate me because mm -hmm. I never used to understand why he behaved the way he behaved. And I used to get so frustrated. And your essay was the first time it gave me a window into why he is the way he is. And I wish I could go back and change some of the things I my behavior with him because I just didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. That's a that's a Sorry nice for that um, TED talk. You asked me a simple question. <laughs> I, I no, on. that's that's what I asked for. It's a uh, um, it's a good it's a good few tools that we can put in that toolbox because uh, we need that. And to your point, uh, I, I had this conversation with Pete Weiner. Um, he was gracious enough to delve into it with me a little bit, and it it forced me to take inventory of what tools. I have and what tools I can incorporate. One of which is what you just said is that being, uh, being mindful about being with people, people that uh, are loving and, you know, are that care about us being with people because um, I, I don't know, every condition is a little bit different, but with, especially when I'm in the depressive part of the cycle, um, it's a good thing my dog's bug the crap, bug the shit out of me every morning to take them out because it's like the hard part is just getting, literally getting out of bed. That's right. You know, so. Um, just to put one foot in front of the other and move. Yeah, yeah. So I, speaking I, of. I, Corey, well, I will say this because the the, polit uh, the podcast is called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Uh, and, and we could talk about religion. There is one aspect, one final aspect, if you can indulge me. Sure. Uh, you know, especially when you come from religious communities. The worst thing you could say to someone who's suffering from uh, OCD or depression or, or uh, bipolar disorder, pray it away. Oh, uh, and and, and whoa, well, you just have weak faith. So, um, so the, to your point, the church I was I was going to when I first became a Christian. I don't know if you've ever heard of John MacArthur. Um, he's a he's a fundament, fundamentalists are like you know hippie liberals to, compared to John MacArthur. You know, if you don't believe in six literal 24-hour days, well, you're you're clearly going to hell like right now. So um, our church is very much, it, we're in that valley where his, his university is. Um, and our church was originally planted by John MacArthur and his people. Um, so that's the, the sentiment that prevails. It's the prevailing theology. So I shared with somebody the, the possibility, I think I might be suffering from depression. The first response was, you don't have a depression issue. You have a sin issue. Yeah. And that just like, oh, that's great. Now I really want to go, you know, jump off yeah, a now, building. Now I just want to kill myself. I, <laughs> I didn't want to kill myself, but now I just want to jump off the bridge because I'm useless. I'm such a piece of shit. <laughs> right. So, so. It's so um, I know we're running short on time. I did have so many things I wanted to talk to you about. Since you're, for example, since you're a recovering attorney and I've been binge watching Suits, I wanted to get into legal questions with you because <laughs> we're both really, you know, but I don't want to go there. I do have one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, in a piece you wrote for the New York Times, I think it was in June, you asked this really thought-provoking question. Um, what you said is, is it truly inclusive and tolerant to signal to LGBTQ kids or LGBTQ parents that simply reading a book or learning about their existence might be so threatening and offensive that it requires an opt-out option in schools. Now, I bring this up uh, because it doesn't have an obvious answer. Um, if for no other reason than uh, Toni Morrison, who I know knows, knew you and knew your play, um, she once said, Wajahat's play is brilliant, moving, shapely, clever. No, 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 that's not the quote. 
That is a quote from from Toni Morrison, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that was Toni Morrison's very. <laughs> he must have hacked my notes to get to no. What she also said was, um, uh, she. Where's the quote? Parents have a right to restrict books in the home. They have a right to tell their own children what to read. So of that whole essay, I, I there was so much that I was. Um, I was aligned with what you were saying about 95 to 99% of it. And then this one thing that you said, I said, you know, I I see your point um, that it's communicating something to our community that we can't even, uh, that we'd opt our children out. But at the end of the day, does a parent have the right to uh, curate what their children are reading? So this is the balance. Look, and I'll be very straightforward and honest about it. What we're witnessing in America in 2023 is a record number of book bans. Yeah. Um, this was manufactured openly by a person called Christopher Rufio, who was a right-wing filmmaker who then became a kind of a, a right-wing agitator who has openly said – it's like the analogy I give is like a Bond villain – Instead of revealing his plot in the third act, he just meets James Bond before the title credits where the golden girls are dancing and says, hey, you want a slideshow of my evil plan? Here it is. (laughs) And and so he has openly shared that his whole plan was to make CRT into a boogeyman. And he said, if we can weaponize CRT, then it can become the the, we could put anything in it and, and get our agenda across. Right. So first, if you remember, about two years ago, it happened in Virginia. It also began in Loudoun County. Which is one of the wealthiest counties in America and one of the last counties to desegregate. Hmm. Those always go hand in hand, where there was a right wing operation. Uh, I'm talking about right wing officials, a few parents, activists, and a lot of right wing money to uh, make Loudoun County into a laboratory for what could have been a national project, which is to go after um, books written by black women, number one. This was right after. the, the killing of George Floyd and when this country for like maybe a brief minute was into diversity and LGBTQ. Now, as a result of that iteration, if you will, they realize, OK, we're not gaining that much traction on banning books by Toni Morrison. But, you know, that group that people are really scared of the tease. Yeah. Transgender. So just look at the last two years, the evolution. I know because we're so overdosed with stuff people forget, but it began with uh, Black Lives Matter. It began with books written by black women. Then, and it's still happening, by the way, you know, they banned AP African American Studies in Florida. Then it became Don't Say Gay, uh, Stop the Woke Act. And now it's the tease, because when it comes to tease, transgender, it is the, one of the most marginalized groups in America, one of the most misunderstood. And it's a Trojan horse from, in which you can launder everything else. Right. Ban AP African American Studies, ban AP Psychology, uh, Don't Say Gay, ban books, yada, yada. So it's very important that people know the political machinations behind this. It's very important that people know what Moms for Liberty really is. It's very important people know the whole right-wing agenda. Now with that, they have started laundering it through stuff like parental freedom, parents' choice, right? And so they have concocted uh, certain manufactured controversies And I'm in Virginia, so I'll tell you straight up. My kids go to Virginia public schools. This stuff is not being taught in the curriculum. I know. i got two kids there. It's not even in the lesson plans. But then on the WhatsApps and through disinformation, you see parents saying, oh, they're teaching our kids this and that. I'm like, do you have proof? I've heard. And so, (laughs) you know, I've heard of it. I'm like, who? No, no, I heard. And they bullied my kid. Did they? Well, they bullied a kid in Canada. I'm like, yo, if if a teacher (laughs) bullied a kid, that would be frigging on Fox every day, like about yeah. this stuff, right? So what we're seeing really, I just want to get to the heart of it before I really t- tackle uh, directly your question is fear. Fear, manufactured fear, panic, it's nothing new, but right now it's under uh, going after the transgenders. Now, yes, in your home, parents, you know, have this, this like, you know, you have a right to raise your kid the way you raise your kids. This is nothing new. When you send your kids out to the world, to school, you entrust in a way the teachers to teach them about the world. So suppose in your home, you're like, I don't believe in evolution. I believe in creationism. A teacher's job living in the modern world is to teach your kid about evolution. Whether you believe it or not, it's up to you. But that's what teachers got to do. Like you could be like, I don't believe in math. I believe two plus two equals five. 
your teacher is going to be like, I understand you believe two plus two equals five, but two plus two equals four. <laughs> All right. I got to teach you that. Uh, woke history. We don't teach. But the watch, that- watch. No, two plus two equals four. That makes me feel, you know, that makes me feel bad. So you can't teach it. That's exactly. And so when it comes to the LGBTQ stuff, I, I want to be very honest here. I'll be super blunt with you. As a practicing Muslim. Okay. I wrote that New York Times article. You have never seen me publicly or privately. I don't think you've ever heard, no one's ever heard me say, you know what? Uh, according to traditional Islam and the scholars, I think that gay sex is halal. <laughs> or maybe gay marriage is halal. Uh, I think the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, peace be upon him, will be okay with it. You've never heard me say it, Court. And so people, all these Muslims have gone after me. There's like, oh, you flaming liberal, you lefty, you, how dare you say that? I'm like, look at what I said. I said in a pluralistic society. Pluralistic is the key. Where we yeah. live in a uh, messy uh, but multiracial democracy, where Muslims in particular, the past 20 years, have been attacked, where the same tactics were used against Muslims to ban Sharia, same exact playbook, just replace Sharia with LGBTQ, trans, or CRT, it was the same playbook, Corey, where Donald Trump literally in May said, if I run again, I'm going to do a Muslim ban. You are opening the doors to bigots who will not only ban books written by or about LGBTQ black women, but also, Corey, anything and everything that makes them feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable including yeah. history books and books written by Muslim authors. And I know this because I have Muslim authors telling me their books are being banned because in their fictional books, their YA books, there's there's something about Islam. And they're like, I'm fighting this in Texas. So I'm like, you are being used to launder white supremacist tactics and, and, and parental fears, which is the easiest thing to always get traction, right? Crime, sex, it's nothing new. Parental freedom. You, your, your reptilian brain is being hijacked by certain right-wing forces to go after a marginalized community because they're saying they're going to make your kid trans. Meanwhile, the reality is that these kids, the LGBTQ kids, if you just step back for a second, step, step away from Hollywood movies, are the most marginalized kids in America, right? And so if a teacher makes a space, Corey, to be like, I'm not asking you to accept gay sex or gay marriage, but by the way, gay people exist. Muslims exist. Christians exist. Jews exist. Black people exist. It's my job to teach you about this. You go do what you want with it. Aren't we making our kids more resilient? Aren't we making our kids more aware? And so the tension will always exist but as a parent, you know, my wife and I have talked about this. We're like, and this is where it goes back to the kids' agility. My kids are nine, seven, and four. And Corey, talk to kids about this. This is what's so funny to me. It's the parents who are freaking out. You go talk to kids. This, this is kids, a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old in America. Yeah, okay, I have a friend who's trans. They're, they're non-binary, whatever. Okay, anyway, uh, let's go watch uh, Pokemon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, yeah, I have a friend. They go by they, them, whatever. Yeah, anyway, so uh, it's, it's such a non-issue. Yeah, there's yeah. not an issue, man. They, they don't, it's always the suburban parents. It's the kids. Kids don't give a shit. Kids are cool. They're like, yeah, I don't think it's weird, but whatever. Eh. Anyway, <laughs> uh, can you yeah. please uh, make me something other than PB&J for lunch? Um, <laughs> so that's my whole take on it. And, and I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it to give a very honest, thorough assessment of what I, why I spoke out as a practicing Muslim who is not convinced. And I'll say this. I'm not convinced looking at the traditional Islamic scholarship that certain actions, behaviors of the LGBTQ people are considered halal. And by the way, if you're LGBTQ listening to this, you don't have to convince me. Live your life. Live your life. Be free. Yeah. I will fight for your right to be free. Just like I'm not going to waste my time convincing you about the existence of Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. I don't care. Mock religion if you want. But just let me go to worship. Let me pray. And onto you, your way, onto me, mine. We'll agree about eight things. We might not agree about ten things, but that's okay. You know, eight out of ten is fine. As long as you and I and our families agree that we get, we get to live with peace and security in this country called America. Well, that answers my next question. Um, so I have so much else to talk about. I could steal another like five hours. But um, I do need to ask you, you've already been sort of talking about this, the TPNR question, which is what do you think? So it's interesting. I just want to contextualize because I've been listening to a lot of democracy-ish. I, I read your book again. And I was I was wondering who the intended audience is. Is it... Um, you used the term last week's episode of Democracy is catharsis. 
is it catharsis for what you're like uh, another expression would be preaching to the choir or is there persuasion is the intent for folks that agree, disagree with you 20% of the time or even 10% of the time to be reading and then maybe to persuade them on it, whether it's a topic like this or any number of the things that you talk about with, with Danny on, on democracy ish. Um, go ahead. I, I yeah. think both, I think both look, I remember, so I'll give an example. You know, I'm being invited to my alma mater, uh, my uh, UC Davis King Hall Law School in like two weeks uh, for their um, racial justice series. Uh, and they have me, you know, it's nice. I'm, after 15 years, I'm going back uh, and speaking. And the reason I mention this is when I was at UC Davis as a student, we put on something called minority reports and where it would be like twice a year during lunch and there'd be three speakers. Um, and the three speakers will get 15 minutes each to tell their story. That's it. And, and mind you, law school and law firms at those days were even less diverse, Corey. <laughs> All right. Uh, and still in, in leadership, it's very white world. So it was like, just come listen to a story of your colleague, an Iranian-American woman, a, a, a black man, uh, a black Christian woman. Uh, I remember one time we had a, a Palestinian. And that's it. And I remember... After one of those events, there was a, a, a member of the administration, and I think she was, uh, I guess she was doing DEI at that time, you know, alumni outreach, Asian American woman. And she said, hey, hey, listen, I just want to tell you something. I've been trying to reach this guy. And this guy at the time was your old school, white, conservative, you know, neocon Federalist Society member, right, in law school. And she goes, he just never, you know, very agitated, if you will, by discussions about racial justice and diversity and kind of shut down, thought it was political correctness. She goes, I've just been trying to reach him, you know, all year. And he came to me and he said, going to Minority Reports and listening to the story of, of one woman kind of made him see things differently. And, and he's like, oh, I get it now. And she said, listen, I just want you to show that I've been trying to reach this guy for a year, but it was that story that did it. And so... Thank you for putting that on and keep doing it. Yeah. And, and so you never know, Corey, right? At the end of the day, look, I always tell people we're only responsible for ourselves and our own intentions and our own actions. That's it. We're just who are we? We're nobody. There's 8 billion people on this earth and we're here for a limited time. At the end of the day, I think you and I believe that we have a loving, merciful creator and that inshallah one day we will meet our creator and we will be held to account for our actions, right? That's all, that's all, that's all I can control. Um, and so I can only tell my story. And the hope is that first and foremost, the people who read it, they find it engaging and entertaining. I don't want to bore you. I think boring you is a sin. And then hopefully they can find it, you know, maybe edifying and educational. And it could give you insight and in perspective, like, huh, I never thought about that. And, and what we have learned uh, through science is that reading fiction, reading stories and listening to stories in particular builds and expands human empathy, Corey. Yeah. Right. It does literally storytelling and listening to stories helps build empathy. Uh, STEM can only take you so far, folks. You still need the humanities. Right. If you want to be a human being. So that's my end goal. Right. If, and so many people now, it's been a year since the book has come out, have said, I never thought about it that way. I saw the last 20 years through a different perspective. He's lived a life I've never I'll never live. But huh, made me think. Oh, it took me to another person's life. I stepped in another person's shoes. And if, I could, if that can create more awareness and more intentionality and better actions and behaviors in people, then that's a win. Right. You know, that reckons with uh, we've had some folks on here that are part of Braver Angels. I'm a delegate, proud to be a delegate. Um, and one of the first questions we're, we learned to ask is what, what in your life experience led you to that position? As opposed to responding to someone who says, you know – uh, I'm voting for Trump. You, 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 you know, immediate. That's crazy. You're dumb. You're a racist. And here's 17 stats to tell you why you're a racist. Um, that's not a very good response. But usually if you doesn't say, work. <laughs> right, right. Um, but getting someone to tell their story, uh, it, it it engenders a sense of empathy. It engenders a sense of community. It engenders a sense of identification with that person. And and um, you know, connecting with that person. We're storytelling creatures. That's right. Uh, so, yeah. Um, last two questions. One quick one. Uh, well, one maybe not quick one, but one definitely quick one. The maybe not quick one is, do you have any questions for me? 
the a question that I have for you is um, what gives you hope in what seems like utterly hopeless times? Or what keeps giving you hope? That's a good Especially question. you, a person who has, uh, and I appreciate you sharing, has depressive tendencies and you know how hard it is to get out of bed. So maybe yeah. even an easier question, and maybe this is even a tougher question, what keeps you getting out of bed, putting on your pants or shorts, sitting in front of the mic, and, and doing what you do, uh, despite both the demons that you have to battle internally and the demons you and I have to battle in the real world? You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and maybe it's just the immediacy of it, is guys like you would say yes to something like this. That guys or women, people whose work I've admired for years, um, whose work in our public square um, are admirable, that, I, that I've admired and respected, that a nobody like me can reach out kind of out of the blue and they would say, yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, when I have, I always have this um, upside down, you, the Lauren Bolbert moment. Don't you know who the hell I am? I have an upside down version of that, which is like, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, know, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah. Don't you know I'm a nobody? Like, and you're saying yes to me to spend some time and talking about this politics and religion thing. That gives me hope. Um, and, and the fact that I've been able to nurture relationships with people who are really contributing in positive ways to the culture, whether it's great thinkers like Jonathan Rausch and Pete Weiner, uh, great activists like Danny, uh, Danielle Moody, um, or uh, Rev Jackie, who I know you know as well in New York. Um, these these are inspirational humans, you know? Um, and like I said, if nothing else gets me out of bed, my dogs get me out of bed. They give me hope. <laughs> they still expect me to feed them exactly at six o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I don't mean to be dismissive of the answer, but that definitely, um, it, it, it gives me hope that folks care enough to have these conversations to figure out how to do this thing better, this democracy thing better, this, you know, experiment better, this community thing better. So that gives me hope. No, man, uh, I appreciate your answer. Um, we all need it sometimes because uh, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm a naturally I think I try to be a very optimistic forward driven person but uh the waswasa there's a great word uh in Arabic called the waswasa it means uh, the whispers and specifically it's the whispers that can bring you down the whisper that incites you to to sin or or greed or lust or envy uh the the waswasa that that brings out the worst part of yourself right the the golem the one the waswasa that makes you into a golem and the waswasas can be very, very powerful. They can overwhelm you uh, mm -hmm. and they can keep you in bed. Uh, and so we all need something, I think, and some advice and some, some of these moments where we are reminded that uh, the opposite uh, of hope is apathy. And, and so we need things to keep us hopeful and to keep us engaged with the world, uh, with our loved ones, and, and simply sometimes just to get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's about movement. You know, uh, and it's some for some people, it's very hard to move when they're like, oh, why should I move towards my own apocalypse? But uh, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, there's a great saying within our traditions exists within all of our monotheistic traditions. Uh, and, and I'll paraphrase what the prophet Muhammad said. He said one time that uh, even if you see the day of judgment coming around the corner, plant a seed. And so our job is to plant seeds. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just human beings, man. Our job is yeah. to plant the seed, and inshallah, if it bears fruit, so be it. Man, that might be the title of our episode. Um, so that's a, that's a good word. So real quick, before we go, how can folks find you? More information about Democracy-ish, uh, your book, and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, so you know, I co-host this uh, lovely podcast with Danielle Moody called Democracy-ish. Uh, it comes out every Wednesday. Uh, no, Thursday. And it's like, you know, it's just us trying to preserve and protect both our democracy and our sanity uh, in times where both are under <laughs> massive duress. The book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. It was released on paperback uh, about eight months ago. And uh, I'm unfortunately still on the Twitter and thread. Uh, and I, I unfortunately tweet and thread too much. 
What's the thread? What's the thread one? It's because it's different. It's, it's Insta Wajahat. Uh, I think Insta Wajahat. Yeah, and then, and I'll uh, share. Twitter I'll, is at Wajahat Ali. I'll um, I'll share all that in the show notes. Thank you, Waj. This was really awesome. It's so nice to visit with you. Um, I want to I want to make sure that we do this again. Uh, please say hi to Danny and and all my friends over there. And uh, I'd really like to see – thank you so much for spending the time, man. I'd like to keep it going, keep the conversation going. No, I appreciate it. And here's hoping uh, we get a four-star to replenish the two-star and then just to keep things honest, a one-star. <laughs> we'll get a one-star. There's something along the lines of these are the same people who – and they talk about you know me based on whatever. and Or, or why don't you spend your time uh, talking about persecution by prosecution or you – know, I don't know if you've gotten any of those. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, Hunter anyway. Biden got indicted. Hunter Biden just got indicted as we were uh, taping this uh, on gun charges. Just happened. <laughs> uh, so now they'll be like, talk about Hunter Biden's indictment. And what I say to that real quick is Hunter Biden was indicted on gun charges. Hunter Biden is not running for president, but the 2024 <laughs> GOP presidential candidate, Donald Trump, has ninety one four times. So there you go. Hunter Biden has something in common with Donald Trump. I you literally said that. America. I literally said that yesterday. Somebody said, what Hunter Biden? I said, I can promise you I will not be voting for Hunter Biden. <laughs> anyway. All right. Sorry. I, thanks for giving me the extra time. Take I'll let you though. know when this comes out. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I, I'd love to stay in touch, man. Thank you so much. Peace. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, subscribe, rate, and review. Hopefully a five-star, not a two-star, not a one-star. Four-stars would be cool, but five-star would be awesome. And tell a friend about talk politics and religion without killing each other. Seriously, taking the time to write a review really does make a difference And telling a friend about a particular episode like this one. Maybe you agree with some stuff, you disagree with some other stuff, and uh, that could spur a conversation with you and your neighbor, you and one of your cousins, you and your friend from church or temple or wherever you're going. Uh, that's the idea, is to get into these conversations and figure out how to do it better. Talk about politics and religion without killing each other. We are easy to find, politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. Or you can find me, at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Thank you.